I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. While most of us in the West are pretty unequivocal about Vladimir Putin's brutal campaign against Ukraine, in Russia itself, a sophisticated infrastructure of deceit conditions the public to see and believe in a very different conflict. Few people are better placed to understand how Russia's brutal campaign came about than our guest this week, Dr Jade McGlynn. And unlike many of the armchair pundits who have emerged in recent months, Jade spent many years living in Vladimir Putin's Russia, as well as conducting groundbreaking research on how the Kremlin twists and exploits Russian history to its own nefarious ends. Jade is currently a senior researcher at the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies in California, and alongside a glittering academic CV, writes regularly for publications such as The Telegraph, The Spectator, and, most importantly, CapEx. She also has two books slated for publication next year, Russia's War and The Kremlin's Memory Makers, both of which promise to be essential reading for anyone interested in the region. She joined me down the line from Monterey to discuss why so many Russians still support the war, how secure the Putin regime is, and how best to rally support in the battle for Ukraine's survival. Jade, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the CapEx podcast all the way from California um, we really appreciate it. Just for our our um, listeners' sake, now you've written uh, a few, quite a few articles about Russia uh, on CapEx, but what's your own personal background in, uh, in terms of living in Russia, having studied Russian uh, for a very long time, teaching Russian and so on? Fill us in a bit on your own sort of biography. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, John. Um, so in terms of my uh, biography, I originally studied Russian literature um, at at university and then I went to Russia and I lived there for around five years Um, and it was during that time that Russia first invaded Ukraine well not first in history but but first in the post-Soviet history at least Um, and that had a really formative effect on on my time in Russia and on my decision ultimately to to leave Russia and on my future career because I was really quite um, I don't want to say obsessed, but very intrigued by um, the exact nature of the propaganda that was being used to encourage um, popular support. And I, you could see that there really was a lot of popular support. So I came back to the UK, studied, um, did a master's and then um, did my my PhD. And then I and then I taught 
um, Russian. Um, and across that time, essentially all of my research looked at, at Russian propaganda and uh, and the use of memory in particular as, as a way of sort of creating this very emotional, emotional propaganda. Mm-hmm. And you've got two books coming out, which I imagine somewhat overlap in their in their content. One one is called Russia's War, which is about the Ukraine conflict, and the other is the Kremlin's Memory Makers, which touches on um, what you were talking about just then, uh, the way that the Kremlin has used Russian history to promulgate uh, its own messages. And where does this kind of World War Two obsession? begin is it a continuation under Putin of something that has been a part of Soviet and then Russian culture for a very long time or has he created something afresh that is distinct from that so firstly I wouldn't say that they necessarily overlap um, I would prefer the word com- the use of the word complement um, but they yeah, are yeah, slightly yeah, yeah but they are slightly different they're slightly different books in that one of them is very focused on 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 Ukraine um, whereas one of them is very focused on on uses of history and is perhaps a slightly more not necessarily academic but it's it's probably not the Kremlin's memory makes probably not aimed as at wide an audience um and it focuses much more on, on the question that, that you've just raised, which is the cult of World War II um, within within Russia and what, what Russians call Pabieda Biesia. So it's sort of, I suppose, it would be like World War II mania, but um, right. that doesn't quite get get across the sense of sort of rabidity um, within Yeah, so Biesia in Russian is the same title as Dostoevsky's book, The Devils, which gives you some sort of idea of that. Um, exactly. The how manic yeah, exactly. it is. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so... I don't think that you could say that it's been completely created afresh. Um, Clearly, a lot of um, the the current cult builds on elements that were introduced and developed under Leonid Brezhnev in particular, who really developed sort of the, I suppose, industrial memorial complex of of World War II, um, including many of the actual complexes themselves. But what's happened, I think, has been a very adept use of of memory under Vladimir Putin um, and in particular his ability to um, use the war firstly to nationalize it to Russians and then to externalize any of the sort of difficult or painful memories in particular collaboration which he's successfully externalized to to Ukrainians and we see that in this narrative that Ukrainians are Nazis that Ukrainians are Nazi collaborators and that's been that's been very powerful um, within Russian propaganda but also this idea that Russians are the heirs to not only to victors but to heroes and that therefore they have a moral right uh, to dictate to others how the world order, in particular the European order, should be. And this is especially powerful because it's complemented with um, a fixation on the 1990s and the idea of humiliation by the West. Um, so it's this sense that the West has humiliated a nation that sacrificed so many of itself you know, to defeat Nazism almost single-handedly, um, and this fuels a sort of ever never-ending sense of, of injustice and and a need to to rectify historical grievance and and we see we see that a lot and it's not just a political thing this is very prominent in popular culture in films you know even in books um this this um tendency to the sort of a, a, a particularly uh popular genre of books where the lead character goes back and um, writes historical wrongs i just want to pick up on you were talking there about um, Ukrainians being described as Nazis. And I think it's quite confusing for 
non-specialists or people who aren't familiar with Eastern Europe to constantly see this idea being peddled. But is it fair to say that in kind of Putinist ideology, Nazi has long since transcended any notion of being anything to do with the Third Reich? And, or if not transcended, it's kind of used as a catch-all for anything that is non-Russian. Is that a reasonable thing to observe? I, I think you're definitely right that Nazi doesn't mean the same thing in Russia as it means in the West. Um, so Nazi, and in particular this idea of, of like Banderite ideology, and that's a reference to Stepan Bandera, who was, um, whose followers collaborated with the Nazis um, to fight for an independent Ukraine, but they also took part in 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 terrible crimes against against Jews and against and, and against Poles. And I mean, that's a whole topic for for another podcast. But um, essentially, he is a hero for many Ukrainians, but not not for the crimes he committed, but because they view him as fighting for an independent Ukraine. But but Russia uses that as an example of a sort of Ukrainian proclivity towards Nazism. And the main point around Nazis is really what it means is that you don't like Russia and that you don't accept 1945. And that's really where it becomes quite interesting, because in some ways, therefore, people that are quite rightly anti-imperialist in, in relation to the Soviet Union are easily dubbed Nazis, according to this narrative, because, of course, Poles don't like um, the world order after 1945 for very obvious reasons, because they were effectively um, occupied, if, if not literally, um, by by this by the Soviet Union. They were very much controlled by the Soviet Union. Um, and so, according to this narrative, the Poles would also kind of be be Nazis because they they didn't accept that after um, World War II, Russia had this had this right to dictate to others. And to what extent do you think people, Putin or the Kremlin, it's not just Putin, obviously there's a whole architecture of propaganda out there. To what extent do you think they are simply tapping into extant feelings among the Russian populace versus them actually creating these opinions, then reinforcing them through this kind of endless repetition on TV where basically the state controls all of TV in Russia now? I think that's I think that's an important question. So that's the question that I want to answer in in the book Russia's War. And my answer, as I think probably the title is a clue to, is that I think that um, politically Vladimir Putin has been more about articulating Russians' um, foreign policy ideals um, or foreign policy what they want from foreign policy rather than dictating it. And despite what he may think, I don't think that Vladimir Putin is a Stalin figure or a Peter the Great figure that has come and imposed his will on, on, on the unwieldy Russian landmass. I think very much, um, you know, we see that he has evolved. Um, clearly, he was never going to win a sort of Democrat of the Year prize, but he has evolved. And I think he is much more an articulation of, of certain I'll be blunt, certain problems in Russian society um, and, and maybe even certain pathologies, if that's not too strong a word, um, probably not really in, in light of the war, um, much, much rather than he's imposed these ideas through through propaganda. I, I, I don't buy that. Yeah, but I always, I mean, I lived in Russia for a while as well, and I always used to hear, more often from foreigners actually than from Russians, that a lot of Russians have a so-called slave mentality or that they they want to be ruled. I mean, do you buy into that idea that they actually that Russian people kind of crave a strong leader because of this because they have enormous borders and, and fear of encirclement and all this kind of thing? No, I, I don't believe in this sort of slave mentality. I agree. I've never heard anybody say it who's actually 
that's the slave mentality point. I've never heard anybody who's actually Russian um, say it. Um, uh, and also, I don't really believe in historical determinism. You know, like there's a lot of arguments now that, you know, Russia will always be this way. Well, you know, a lot of countries were always a certain way. Um, you know, for a long time, Ukraine was quite a divided country and look at it now you know, it could teach everybody a thing or two about resilience and unitedness. So um, I, I don't, and Germany, I mean, there are so many examples. I don't believe that Russia is 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 doomed by by geopolitics or geography or, or history to, to, to be a certain way. I do think that, of course, there's a cult of um, a strong leader within Russian national history within Russia, and of course that that sort of then feeds into culture, and and it's reinforced. I mean, at the moment, it's it's really strongly reinforced. But there are different ways of of looking at, at Russian history. I mean, in some ways, you could look at it uh, as a history of kind of revolutions um, or protests against strong leaders. So, um, I think as always with history, I mean, it, it depends depends what it depends what aspects you want to highlight, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially as one of supposedly one of Putin's own greatest fears is of a kind of of a colour revolution happening on his own territory, which suggests he thinks there might be some some appetite for democratic upheaval um, within Russia. Just coming on to um, the current conflict in Ukraine, we're what five months into the three day war now. Um, I mean, long seventy two hours. <laughs> it really was. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I personally I think forecasting and predicting things is slightly overrated um, as a kind of metric. But at what point did you think, oh, God, this is actually going to happen? And how has it panned out compared to what you thought when it first started? How has it how has it developed um, since? I mean, what and what might maybe has surprised you about the way it's developed, both from a Ukrainian and a Russian point of view? So. I didn't expect there to be a full scale invasion um, because it didn't make any sense because they so clearly weren't going to um, they so clearly weren't going to be able to occupy all of Ukraine. It's just it, it's just complete madness. Um, the only time that I thought there would be actual full scale invasion and also because tactically it didn't make any sense that already crippled Ukraine's NATO aspirations by occupying Donbass um, and Crimea because Ukraine would never give up its, its claim to those territories and therefore never be able to join NATO. So it just didn't make any sense to me why they were already in a pretty good position, you know, in terms of what they at least stated that they wanted to achieve. And although I understood they didn't believe Ukraine to be a real state, I also thought that I thought there were two things. So one, I, they clearly weren't going to be able to occupy Ukraine. And two, um, I know that Russia is obsessed with this idea of the decadent West, that the West is on its way out. I mean, this, this is something they've been obsessed with many times in history. But I didn't think that they they clearly overestimated how quite how um, decadent and, and sort of fallen apart and divided the West was. Um, and I think there was, and I know there was genuine shock at, at the strength of the Western response, particularly at the start. Um, so for those reasons, the, I mean, I also went on maternity leave um, in, in December. So to be honest with you, I was trying not to engage with it too much, you know, to try and sort of like really have a break and, and, and whatnot. It came to like a sharp end, obviously, on, on, well, on 20th of February and when was it the Monday, maybe it's the 21st, um, when you had the Security Council meeting and then it was clear there was going to be a full scale invasion. Um, then it was just it was just abundantly clear um, because there was no point in in recognizing um, the territories and just the whole 
madness of that Security Council meeting, and you could just see. Um, that said, even knowing that and expecting it then for those few days, I, I don't think that anything in my life could ever have prepared me for the sight of Russia bombing Kiev. No, indeed. Um, I think I, even in, I think a lot of people in the same boat, they thought it was, they're sort of so used to this kind of trolling almost from the Russian military, kind of fly pass and little mini incursions that they thought, well, this is the modus operandi and we'll have another Abkhazia or, or whatever it might be. Um, in terms of the, I mean, your work has focused a lot on propaganda. What version of this war or special operation are normal Russians seeing on the TV and in other sources as well, online? And how much of it do you think they actually believe? I mean, it strikes me that one of the big challenges for you as academics is working out how, you know, how to actually gauge Russian public opinion when a lot of the, when some of the polling might itself be fabricated. Yeah, so that is very difficult. And I think with polling, after a certain time, you have to just say, we're not maybe ever going to know if it's 53% or if it's 71% or if it's 81% that support the war. Um, and you have to, I suppose, just use what evidence there is. I mean, for, for my part, I think that clearly a significant enough section of the Russian population supports the war, that it's worth investigating why. Um, and I think that's something I haven't seen really any serious sociologist um, disagree with, with that statement. In terms of what they're seeing, I mean, in the West, of course, we focus a lot on the most extreme um, propagandists because, because essentially they they make that sort of content that sort of reinforces this like this bamboozling idea of just okay the russians are clearly insane um if they believe these things um now a lot of people do watch these shows these shows are very popular um so and to be honest with you they're very difficult watches i mean they're quite easy as a researcher because they just hammer home sort of repetition the same point so actually as provided you're quite detached and you have that sort of research objectivity it's quite easy because you can so just to just to clarify these are the sort of shows where you get sort of three or four sort of 50 something 60 something men usually (laughs) shouting at each other about how best to punish russia's enemies and this sort of thing yes exactly exactly so sort of um, the evening with um, Vladimir Salavyov, um, Viesti Nijet. Like, yeah. yeah, he's he wears like a like a World War II, One style tunic um, all the time, um, and then you have Dmitry Kisilyov, who's um, who used to have an English wife and now seems to spend a lot of his time threatening the UK with um, with nuclear annihilation. So I'm not sure if there's a link there. Um, and um, then you have Yevgeny Popov and um, Skabieva, who's his wife, and they're sort of this weird kind of like couple of, of sort of just awfulness. Um, and yeah, so these are the more extreme examples. But I think um, there are also a lot of other examples that that then reinforce the, the type of messages. So a lot of the series, for example, it's quite normal to have. Um, you know, there's a lot of World War II content that's created a lot of new World War II content, a lot of series about World War II, a lot of new films that's shown on TV and old films and a lot of Soviet content that's sort of recycled. So that feeds this Soviet nostalgia, but also feeds a lot of tropes from the Soviet Union that are common now. You know, this idea of like the West that's um, out to get Russia and that's um, that can't be trusted and, and that's trying to attack. And then in a lot of the new series, particularly, um, you'll 
find a lot of references to sort of the idea of Ukrainians as, as traitors, Ukrainians as, as supporters of Banderas, as Nazi collaborators. So in lots of ways, I think there's been a lot of attention on, I suppose, the big the big narratives, you know, the 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 images um, on on TV that you know threaten everybody with nuclear annihilation. That's completely, of course, I understand why there's a focus and there should be a focus on that. But at the same time, I don't think we should forget these these little ways that the context is created, like the the web of lies kind of becomes becomes um, the, the context um, through which a lot of Russians judge what's happening. And they, these narratives have been really carefully developed out of existing narratives and that you know that have existed for a long time or tropes or myths um, that have existed for a long time in Russia um, you know since far before Putin and they've then kind of I suppose been revitalized since 2014 um, to spin a version of the world that it has quite a tenuous link with reality. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you think, just picking up on what you're saying there about intensifying over the last eight or so years, how do you trace the evolution of Putin's own thinking towards Ukraine? Do you think he has always harboured ambitions of kind of restoring some version of what people call Novorossiya or Greater Russia, whatever you want to call it, that involved a big either coup d'etat or territorial land grab? Or is this something that has developed after 2014? No, I don't think it's developed after 2014. So I think essentially what we're talking about, I mean, the term that's used a lot at the moment is historic Russia and this idea, and and it's important. It may seem esoteric, but I mean, most people agree that that nations aren't kind of, that they're created, you know, that they're, they're kind of imagined. That doesn't mean that they're not real. It's just that they're sort of constructed by lots of different things. Whereas Putin believes that, that certain nations just exist um, and that, that um, you have kind of, countries that are sovereign and countries that are colonies. And to him, Russia is sort of a sovereign nation. And then a country like Ukraine is is a colony um, in that sense. So I think it's the decision to destroy Ukrainian statehood 
is a reaction to Ukraine properly demonstrating its statehood in the sense that the reason why it's become such a problem since 2014 is because Ukraine has become, has clearly shown that it doesn't want to be under the, the Russian umbrella, what, what Putin would describe as Ukraine as an anti-Russia. Um, and also because it's become increasingly enmeshed in, in, in Western structures, but also increasingly maybe successful. You can see sort of civil society. Well, we can see how resilient civil society is because I don't think many European countries would be able to resist um, Russian aggression like this and for their societies to hold up, not, not in a million years. Um, and I think that's, it's these sort of elements that, that have, have caused the threat because in some ways Putin's thinks quite similarly to Zbigniew and Brzezinski, despite of course them being on opposite sides in that idea that you know, without Ukraine, Russia isn't an empire. Right. And we talked about uh, TV and the programmes that people watch to reinforce public support. I just wonder what your view is in terms of alternative kinds of media and how effective they are. Because I see quite a lot of kind of Russian content on, the, on social media and stuff that's very anti-Putin. Um, but is this really only affecting a kind of niche let's say, fairly well-educated, already Western sympathetic part of the country? Or is it possible that that's kind of breaking through a bit more? No, I, I don't think that we can talk about that breaking through more um, right now. I think, if anything, much less. I mean, that we see it, it's not a reflection that, that Russians see it. First of all, they wouldn't see it because, you know, the laws that were brought in on March 4th um, or 4th of March um, are very stringent and... Um, and of course, I mean, there is wonderful content. I agree with you. I mean, some, uh, to be honest with you, some of the, I would probably say the best investigative journalist websites in the world are all Russian, but they're pretty much only accessible via VPN. And I think there was a poll just yesterday that came out that showed that half of Russians had never even heard of VPN as, an, as a concept. Um, I mean, a lot of young Russians do use it, but, um, and then the other point is that I mean, even online, algorithms are set up in such a way as to favor uh, Russian state propaganda. And also, again, it's this context we need to look at rather than thinking this is just about access to information. I mean, you'll, you'll meet plenty of people in other countries who have access to all the information who will believe the Russian side. We'll meet plenty of people here who might believe things that we think are insane. I mean, here being, sorry, here being the UK, I'm actually based in the US, but you know what I mean. Um, and I, you'll certainly meet plenty of people here in the US who believe in the same things. Um, but I think the point is that not to look at sort of what the propaganda is, but at why people believe it. And I think that's what's happened for a long time is there's been this tendency, and this is a broader point, maybe not just about Russia, to just dismiss people if they believe things that we see as as untrue or as not based in facts, rather than learn sort of why, what what issues are causing them to believe such extreme things, you know, what maybe I, I don't mean to be kind of like over psych, uh, psychoanalytical about it but like what traumas lay behind that because you know what sort of collective traumas what what's happened that that people need to believe these these you know these lies and need to go into somebody else's country and and you know that don't believe that you know things believe that butcher is a complete fake you know the the trustees in butcher that um the ukrainians have set that up i mean there's something quite wrong i think with a collective psyche if they think that that has been 
is that has been staged and I think it's important to work out why rather than simply shout at people you know you're wrong or think that if we can just show them the fact that they'll change their mind because that's not what studies show studies show if you try to change people's minds by just kind of throwing like statistics and information at them actually it hardens their opinion yeah it's very striking hearing accounts of Ukrainians many 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 of whom have relatives in Russia telling them what's going on and them saying no, they don't believe it or that it's the actual Ukrainians bombing themselves um, or the Nazis, quote unquote, Banderites, whatever you, you want to call them. Um, I think that the same, in a way, we talked about why people believe things. One thing, one of the reasons people believe things is because they are psychologically comforting in the way that you've, you've described. And I think the same thing applied, especially at the beginning of the war here in the West, where people were peddling ideas that were comforting about how, oh, there's a coup d'etat brewing in the Kremlin and, you know, Putin could be ousted or the Russian economy is about to collapse. To be honest, I, I kind of bought into it a bit in, the, in my sort of lower moments, but it's proven complete nonsense um, as far as I can tell. How do you see the state of his regime at the moment? Aside from the fact that he is kind of getting on a bit, there's lots of rumours about his health, um, for example. But do you think he's as solid as ever or are there any chinks in the armour? Like, I can't talk to his health, but I would say, yes, he's very secure in his regime. The elites have consolidated. The, I mean, I speak to a lot of people in those circles, obviously, for, for my book and also just sometimes for, for work reasons. And I would say there's a real feeling that this is a war. Um, this isn't a special there's a special military operation going on in Ukraine, but there's a war against the West. And even if you disagree with the special military operation, even if you wouldn't have launched it, it's kind of one of those my country right or wrong. You know, yeah. in the same way that that, you know, perhaps we, we might feel that way towards the UK if we really felt that the UK was under under existential attack. So that's something important, um, I think, to note is that sometimes the support for Putin isn't necessarily reflective of a desire to, to carve up Ukraine. Um, it, it can exist almost in spite of that. And it makes things even more difficult. I think if Putin would be under threat from anybody as well, it's worth pointing out he'd be under threat from nationalists, you know, real ethno-nationalists. He wouldn't be under any threat from nice oppositionist liberals, you know, as much as I wish he were. And I would love to believe that um, it is, again, um, sort of wishful, wishful thinking um, in terms of sort of comforting narratives and that's why so many Russians believe it that's true and I want to come back to but I also want to come back to the idea that, that you, I mean about why Russians sort of don't don't believe alternative views even if they're coming from Ukraine and I suppose we have to think what would we do if a Russian sort of a Russian that, that we know and we liked maybe we were even very close with called us up and said okay but you don't understand like you know there are Nazis in Ukraine who've done xyz and you know told us that that Butcher was staged we would of course dismiss them because we know right because we don't, wouldn't put any credence in what they're saying we know we're just like that's just not true but of course and I 100, I just want to clarify before I go into this, I 100% do not think that Putin is staged. I 100% think that, that it happened as, as we see. But the point is, is that at a certain point, it's not, we can't completely know. We weren't in Butcher. We didn't witness these things, but we trust the sources that we've seen, right? We put credence in them. Okay, these sources are reliable sources. We know, we, we, we see certain things, you know, the past people that we hear it from, or even the news that, that reports it. Because we put, and I think again, it's this idea of this issue of who do you trust, 
who do you put credence in? And people in Russia just so do not trust the West. They so have been primed to so not trust the West, to so not trust our sources, to so not trust um, Ukrainians that they don't put any credence in, in these reports. And they do put credence in their own. And to and a lot of their, their coverage, it's very similar to ours. It's just roles are reversed. So this idea, you know, you have like this program called Anti-Fake, which is about how much, um, you know, Westerners are lied to, how much Western media lies to Westerners um, and Ukrainian media lies to Ukrainians to an extent that whilst we have no, just like we have no problem saying, okay, the Russian government lies to you, um, to, to Russians, they, they, they think the same thing. Yeah, it's very striking. I mean, I speak to Russians a fair bit as well. And the, the sort of impression some of them have about the West. I, I remember speaking to one woman and she was like, oh, I see that uh, Paris is overrun with African refugees. You know, this kind of thing. They're very into the idea that we're in the middle of a kind of existential crisis because of migration, um, for example. Just looking to the future now, I, I wonder if how... Do you think the other countries on Russia's periphery, I'm thinking not just of the Baltic states, but also places like Kazakhstan, um, Armenia, Georgia, obviously, which already had a conflagration with Russia. How do you think the governments and citizens of those countries are feeling when they look at Ukraine? Or are they perhaps thinking, well, he's had his, you know, he's had he's got burned quite severely going into Ukraine. I don't think there'll be much more adventurism after this. Um, so I think they're, they're feeling pretty insecure. Um, that would be one way of summing it up. I mean, there's different reactions. The Georgian government, I mean, the Georgian people, of course, are very strongly with Ukraine, but the Georgian government has reacted very weakly. And again, it reflects, um, well, it reflects the business interests, I think, <laughs> of Georgia's leader, but it also reflects, you know, the difficulty that, that Georgia only had, that, you know, that there are Russian troops stationed, you know, what, 30, 40, well, 40 kilometers from, from Tbilisi? Um, maybe slightly more. Um, so there's a lot of insecurity there. And I think we saw that with Takayev as well in Kazakhstan. Um, there was a clear annoyance there, though I think with Takayev, there was also an element of, well, you're clearly not going to try and annex northern Kazakhstan because how are you doing with Kiev? Um, that I think allowed him a little bit more freedom of action that I actually found a bit surprising given, you know, that it was just in January that, that Russia sent in troops to help kind of put down protests um, in, in Kazakhstan, um, but, but I suppose fair play, <laughs> but yeah, insecure in a word. I mean, when you look at the state of the war at the moment, obviously Russia seems to be concentrating its forces in the east. One of the things that concerns me is that the Western public, um, for quite obvious reasons, there's a lot of very severe pressures on people's livelihoods and living standards at the moment but the ukraine is slipping down and down the agenda and it just doesn't feel as though western governments are either responding or are under the same pressure they were under at the beginning of the war to support um ukraine i mean do you think people are in government are really apprised of just how much ukraine needs if it's going to have any i hesitate to call it success given what's already happened but if they had to stop their country being kind of overrun and taken over by um, by Russia. So there's two points here, I think. One of them is that I think it's just natural that people are going to turn off a little bit. And I think what's really important is that we don't try to turn them back on by constantly bombarding them with pictures of atrocities. 
that doesn't work. What needs to be done is to show that Ukraine can win. There's a lot of studies into this that show that if you, if people think a war is winnable, then they will support, continue to support it, even if maybe they're not so engaged, you know, and that's natural because that just happens with, with anything. So I don't think there's too much need to panic, provided that we're just quite careful about the way that, that it's covered. Um, you know, of course, cover it honestly, but but there's always different ways of framing things. In terms of government, I mean, I feel like the MOD has done a really excellent job in the UK. Um, so I feel very confident in in, in their assessments. Okay, well, so the UK is doing a decent job, but uh, perhaps for others to step up to the same mark. Um, Jade, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us on the CapEx podcast. And hopefully you will have time during your uh, sejourn in America to write some more stuff for us. But uh, in the meantime, I would uh, ask all our listeners to, of course, get your copies of Russia's War and the Kremlin's Memory Makers um, when they come out. They're both out uh, next year. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.